indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 40, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studio in Oakland, California. Yo, it's the big 4-0, y'all. Tell a friend. We're so grateful you are tuning in. Away the crud in the drool pool Made his chrome dome glisten At first he couldn't tell she had a chromosome missing Kept a spare somewhere in these underwear He swear he helped to get the gum out of her hair Episode 40 of the Up for Life podcast is brought to you by Path to Panacea Luminosity These thoughtfully crafted blends will inspire you to see your kitchen as an herbal apothecary Botanicals are used in herbal medicine to help revive, tone, and invigorate systems, serving to nourish and restore balance. When you brew a cup of tea, take this time to steep in grandmother's wisdom, inviting it in abundance and offering gratitude. With each selection, you'll receive detailed information on the herbs and spices, benefits, flavors, and brewing instructions for your special blend. While these herbal formulas are perfect to brew for tea, with the easy-to-follow recipes, many can also be made into tinctures, syrups, and other botanical medicines. You can find them at pathtopanacea.com. That's P-A-T-H-T-O-P-A-N-A-C-E-A.com, pathtopanacea.com. You can also find them on Etsy. Again, Luminosity. Tonic herbs, proper nutrition, adequate rest, connecting with self, and joyful exercise are our primary prescriptions for well-being. Quote Rosemary Gladstar. Path to Panacea, y'all. From the top of the key for three villain Been on in the game as long as you can really swing Turn the corner spinning, bust that ass and get up Dust off the mask, a laugh, give him a head up He got jumped, it pumped his adrenaline He said it made him tougher than a bump of raw medicine To write all night long, the hourglass is still slow Flow from hellborn to free power like Lil' Cole And still owe bills, pay dues forever Slave use when it comes to who's more cleverer Used to wore leather goose feet with the fur collar and charge the fee for loose leaf Words for dollar, you heard holler Broad or dude, we need food Eat your teams for sure, the streets or seem rude For fam like the partridges Pardon him for the mix-up Battle for your tarry cartridges Or put your kicks up, it's a stick I put your blicks up Ooh. And we're back 
Yes, indeed. Up for Life Podcast, episode 40. Fourth decade. We done made it. Give thanks. It's a new year, 2021. And, yeah. I'm not sure we've ever been so stoked to turn the page, but still, nonetheless, got to give thanks uh, for an amazing year for this podcast and just give thanks for making it through such a confusing and confounding experience that was 2020. And I heard from some folks along the way that this podcast, in one way or another, uh, was in some way special or uh, effective for however you chose to navigate the past year. So I am so stoked to know that folks feel such a way about the show, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. Everybody who sends messages, emails, uh, etc., expressing such sentiments, I'm very appreciative and honored you feel that way. So give thanks that we made it to 2021, and everyone out there that tunes in really goes a long way to keeping me creating the Up For Life podcast. And just wanted to acknowledge some of our friends in the podcast game, like Dopey Podcast. Dave at Dopey came on this show, and he's been a great friend to the Up For Life podcast, as has Conspirituality Podcast and Derek Barris. So shout out to Derek. And of course, Eric Krasno, Kras Plus One, amazing show, dear friend, and just wanted to shout out Eric and the team over at Osiris. Wanted to uh, let everyone know you can rate and review the Up For Life podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your podcast player of choice. Uh, goes a long way to sending the algorithms in this direction, letting people know how they can discover the show gotten some wonderful reviews and I appreciate every last one of them but uh, if you do have the time and are so inclined please consider rate or review the podcast you can also hit me up direct b.gets at upfullife.com send me an email love to hear recommendations reflections any thoughts you might have on any of the matters and I'm proud to announce that we do have a patreon patreon.com backslash upfullife just kind of getting it off the ground i hear from some folks how can they support how can they get behind this project well rolling out the patreon we've got it up there you can check it out i've got some you know fun prizes for anyone who just uh, chooses to become a patron starting off with some stickers some playlists some music from my personal collection so feel free to join in or just hit me up direct at b.gets at upfullife.com speaking of upfullife.com just dropped the annual 20 favorite records of 2020 so that was 20 albums reviewed another 20 uh, honorable mentions which just as easily could be in the top 20 and then a smattering of singles and seven inches and live album releases just kind of like to reflect on the year in music at the end of every revolution around the sun and uh, this as I mentioned was a strange perplexing year and we had a lot of time to sink into the music uh, that came out that was uh, birthed during this epic pause and uh, I think the art in a lot of ways reflects that uh, context and cultural climate so please feel free to swing on over to upfullife.com uh, 
and check out the 20 favorite records of 2020. Give thanks for everyone who's already done that. Of course, there is a donation uh, link, PayPal and Venmo in there if you're so inclined to support the journalism in that way. Uh, be so obliged. So again, rate and review the podcast. Check out the patreon.com backslash life and go to upfullife.com for the latest year in review project. I'd be remiss if I did not acknowledge the... I hate when they say untimely passing. When is it ever timely? But just the seismic shift that is the transition of one metal face, metal fingers, doom, doomalay, King Ghidorah, Victor Vaughn, MF Doom, Zev Love X has left the building. So it is what a blow uh, at the end of the Jaw Forsaken year of 2020. Just a gut punch on the way out the door. And the music culture has been reeling all year from one loss after the next. As we all have in our personal lives, uh, the music culture has been affected markedly. And uh, really tough to take the loss of MF Doom uh, on the last day of the year. Turns out he actually passed away on Halloween and uh, was able to keep his transition uh, just to his family. And it was his wife, Jasmine, who announced it on New Year's Eve afternoon that Dumoulin had indeed transitioned. And, you know, a lot of websites and blogs and podcasts will opine on uh, this man's career, this man's artistic output, his voluminous contributions to the culture, the way he revolutionized emceeing, his production, his affiliations, his influence on two and three generations of rappers, MCs, producers. Um, so I'm going to leave that to them. I'm going to play a little bit of Doom in the background as we get things started here and just uh, offer a deep bow of gratitude and raise a glass in tribute and roll up an L for the masked villain mf doom and give thanks for everything that uh he did while he was here and we'll continue to celebrate his life and uh, of course listen to his music for the rest of time uh, with that we'll hear a little bit of rhymes like dimes from operation doomsday one of the first mf doom tracks ever heard and then we'll get into our guest for episode 40 of the Upful life podcast I'm your host, B. Getz. Rest easy, Dumoulin. When is his time? I hope his soul go to heaven. He nasty like the old time, old number seven. He still taste it when you chase it with the Coca-Cola. Make him wish they could erase it out the Motorola. I told her, no credit for a bag. If you want what they got, then go get it. It's all gack. Only in America could you find a way to earn a healthy buck and still keep your attitude on self-destruct. I sell rhymes like dimes. The one who mostly keep cash, but tell about the broke times. Joker rhymes like the issue just happy to see.
episode 40 of the Up For Life podcast. Proud to welcome Johnny G of the band Le Special, John Grusowskis. Uh, I'm new to the Le Special universe. Uh, some may say I've been asleep at the wheel, but a uh, <clears throat> little context here. Uh, sometime in late October, I got a message from Johnny asking me to check out his new record with a special called Ancient Homies, which was going to drop on December 4th. Um, and yeah, I get a number of these, uh, you know, hey, check out the press advance of our new record, etc. And I try not to take it for granted, but I don't always get around to listening to every song on every release. Um, for whatever reason, something stuck with me, the way he asked, uh, maybe just certain mystique that is around the special that I was certainly aware of, if not attuned to. And I also, uh, way years ago, five-ish years ago, four and a half, on a weed farm here in Northern Cali, my man Mikey Dredd's place, uh, a fellow named Jules Jensen, uh, was hyping the special to me as we spent a couple days together in this spot up in uh, Grass Valley. And stuck with me. Jules is an accomplished musician himself. He was on tour at the time, kind of stopping through his buddy's place. I happened to be there, and Jules was involved in uh, some way with the recording uh, a track or two uh, on Ancient Homies, the new Les Special album, but he's a Special fam. Uh, and so is Jackson Whalen, who's a good friend of the podcast and will be coming on here soon. So it was uh, familiar even though uh, I was relatively unawares as to the music of the special, but so grateful that Johnny G hit me up because it's been a long time since I had such a profound out of left field experience with an album, totally unexpected and completely overwhelming. You know, though I occasionally enjoyed Johnny G's contributions to music discussions on social media, you know, I have to acknowledge I was less than familiar with his work. Some years ago, you know, I'd heard a little bit from them, but uh, I made a snap judgment or something and didn't circle back, and that's on me. It's my bad. Certainly a lesson there. And it turns out I've been missing out on something pretty serious. But I'm not sure anything could have really prepared me for the visceral, physical, downright spiritual experience that Ancient Homies delivers. I'm new to the special, but this mystique and this music, it's in my blood. So, uh, yeah, hailing from Housatonic High School in Fall Village, Falls Village, Connecticut, uh, these are childhood friends, Johnny G, the drummer, Rory Dolan, the bassist, Luke Bamond, uh, Johnny's on guitar, keyboard, samples, vocals, and uh, they all kind of produce and mess around with the electronic side of things. Um, this is actually their third record, their first on Ropadope, and they made it in a different experience and creative space, obviously because of COVID-19, quarantine, being off the road, etc. So we get into all of that, but I gotta say, uh, I'm super just vibing with my man Johnny G. Uh, ever since we connected and uh, I dove into this record, uh, it's been a really rewarding relationship. Uh, just 
first through his music and then getting to know him a little bit through our communications and eventually two conversations which make up the podcast you're about to hear. It's time that we put a little bit of a, of a light on some of the younger, talented, and really motivated, intentional creators in this culture, in this community, and in other communities as well. So one of the things we're going to look toward in 2021 is, you know, the future. And that starts with uh, these cats, the special. Uh, it's future music, but they're ancient homies. And real talk, Johnny G feels like an ancient homie to me already. Um, and I don't say that lightly, but there's a connection there. And uh, from that came this forthcoming conversation. So I'm going to leave you with a little bit of the song Boundary Dissolution found at the end of Ancient Homies. Really emotional, beautiful number. And then uh, I'll play another special song for the Vibe Junkie Jam at the end. But uh, maybe we'll go a little heavier with that one. But here's Boundary Dissolution and then you'll hear my conversation with Johnny G of The Special on episode 40 of the Up For Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. Hey, Johnny G. How's it going? Great to talk to you, man. You hear me okay? Yeah, man. You sound loud and clear, dude. Super grateful uh, for your time and, of course, the music. It's pretty late. You know, I'm talking to you on the East Coast. I'm out here in Oakland. You a night owl by nature? Yeah, I am. So it's 1138 here. That's that's nothing. That's just when the juices start flowing. Yeah, I feel the same, you know, and, and as I get older, I realize I'm, it's more peculiar. But what is it about the nighttime hours, whether it's creativity or is it the sort of silence you get with yourself? I find that some of my almost like manic creativity and production, whether it's writing or podcasting, happens nocturnally. Yeah, same here. Like staying up late making beats or... Messing with music, playing guitar, yeah. For some reason, I think it's what you said. It's like the silence you have with yourself. Maybe it's because everyone else is asleep. So there's the sort of, uh, you're free of responsibility in a sense. Um, you can just create the world's kind of on hold for a second. Um, that's a great question, though. I've wondered about that a lot. Yeah, well, I was you know, wondering whether or not you know, this time was going to work out, you know, we've been kind of juggling and you've been, you know, on the go <clears throat> doing a lot of stuff, which we'll get to around your big new year's event. And of course the album rollout and me, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm home at the home office a lot, but it's not always the ideal time for 
what I do with the writing. And I find that, yeah, when everybody else, you know, not even just my partner here at the home, but just like when it seems like there's a collective quiet in the neighborhood or in my mental space, it's just an easier way to get out the easel and just sort of draw, you know, to use a metaphor. So I also hear your music, uh, it's nighttime music. And, and, you know, I do that a lot where I compartmentalize things for certain emotions, time of day, seasonal. But uh, I got a lot of nighttime vibes from the special. So that's what really made the whole, like, late night vibe the other night cool. So let's start there. You guys did, like many bands, uh, a New Year's event where you, you know, streamed a live performance. So... For those folks who don't know what goes into that, who just turn on their computer and see a band performing, maybe just take us through how you you all put that together. Well, we couldn't have done it without our crew. Um, It was pre-recorded, you know, so we could get the mix right, so we can edit all the clips and the ads from the sponsors in. Um, So it was a live set. You know, we performed it seamlessly, two sets but it wasn't uh, being broadcast, you know, to YouTube at the exact moment it was filmed. It was actually recorded at around four or five in the afternoon, um, the Tuesday before New Year's, which I was a little apprehensive about, because like you said, we're night music, and I would agree with that. I think usually when we do our thing, it's late at night. Um, But no, it it felt good and uh, sounds good. So um, we can do a set before midnight, we learned. Right. But how about like uh, the process of actually creating a live performance with, you know, no audience and it's not a ticketed event? Because, you know, I'm just watching y'all and I've watched it back a couple of times already. And, you know, it's you got the lights, you got the visual accompaniment, you got banter between songs. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, do y'all approach it like a gig or is it more like a video shoot? I mean, you said it was seamless sets, so I guess what you were saying is you got out there and you played sets. You didn't do, like, a second take of another song, like, let's get it again. You just we, played. Which we could have, which, right. which is a great opportunity, but we, it's, and it was sort of weird to shift gears between those two things, so we were just like, let's just play, get through it, if, you know, if it's not perfect, it's a, it's a fucking live set. Um, but no, it, it's a great question, man, and we're we're learning as we go. I mean, in this new era of distancing, like, people are rewriting the book on how to do these performances. Um, so yes, it was a video shoot as well as a live show. It was kind of a unique thing that maybe you wouldn't really think to do if things weren't what they are right now. Um, so it's interesting exploring that, but so we went to this space, it's audio spectrum in Randolph mass, just South of Boston, huge warehouse, uh, audio rental company. I mean, I'm talking, every guitar amp you'd want, every bass rig you'd ever want, line array, like PA systems and um, front of house, huge consoles. And there's like a sprinter van in the place and everything. Um, so they set up this huge video wall for us and uh, some sound. And uh, our crew came in. Um, we had Vin Puglisi, who is VFX Design Studios, very talented LD visual artist from Boston area. Um, we worked with him closely to get video content from song to song and, you know, lighting concepts. Uh, and then it was live streamed by our, our media manager, Chris Bykirk, 
from Rochester, New York. Uh, we call him CB. He's CB Video Marketing. Um, he captured the whole thing and streamed it and cut, did the camera cuts. And then he drove home to Rochester that night. He got home at like 6 a.m. Um, and then the next day, it was crunch time. We had to get it out by New Year's. So he edited this whole thing together for this frantic day, um, you know, where we're shooting him the audio mix and uh, getting everything together. He, he worked his ass off. So we couldn't have done it without our crew. Um, and hopefully that gives you some insight into the, the process of how we did it. Oh, it definitely does, man. I, I, I got to say, you know, like the whole look of it was really the aesthetic, I should say. It was dope. You know, like I think in this era, as you said, people are forced to go back to the drawing board and rewrite the book on what you do in whatever mediums now that it's virtual. And you see various levels of production value you know, depending on the artist or the nature of the circumstance. So I, you know, work extensively with Live for Live Music. I don't have a huge role in their virtual uh, live festival, you know, streaming festivals, but, you know, they've evolved that concept from beginning till now where they'll collect a bunch of performances and sort of string them together. And you can see one to the next, you know, one is kind of uh, a little bit more produced or maybe filmed at Tipitina's. And then one is just like, Aaron Neville, his little Yamaha keyboard and fireplace in the background. Of course, I love the record, so I was keen to see how you'd bring those songs to life. Um, and that's kind of what I want to talk about next. But uh, just the look and the feel juxtaposed to some of the other productions I've seen, not just on New Year's, but in general, like you guys nailed it. It was really engaging. Uh, I couldn't help but chuckle with the sponsors. You guys were stoked to get like, Canna <laughs> cannabis sponsors and then you're like plugging the sponsors and you know it's just really uh it's an evolution of that of the medium of the live stream and uh and then yeah of course you set a goal it can't be fun to have to kind of like grovel for donations but that's part of it and you have to ask and bring attention to it and you know especially was, after a year of people doing that you sure know, yeah. people are fatigued of the streams so we were nervous about that but you guys did great. You crushed your goal. And that's got to buoy your spirits to be like, wow, man, like we still have our fans and they're still willing to spend. And it's a harder earned buck today than it was a year ago. You know, the dollar from the fan goes a lot. It's a lot harder to part with in a pandemic. But yes, I was sir. really stoked to see you guys do well. So give thanks. Uh, you know, your fans are really yeah. lifting you up. And you got the crew coming together, busting their ass putting this together in 24 hours and then you guys stepped up and and nailed it uh, a lot of this was maybe you know some of the first times maybe performing some of this material or the first few with ancient homies songs and the live element um some of them we've been playing for a while and some of them they were live staples and some of them uh we'd never played until that show and uh it was a challenge uh we still haven't tackled repeater um that one kind of came together in Ableton and sort of sending each other clips back and forth. So it, it didn't come together like most of her songs, which is us three in a room uh, playing off each other. So that one's going to be a challenge, but no, it was great fun to do the homie tracks. We did homie numero uno and dose, which as you know, B were improvs in the studio. We recorded those with a lot of the album with our buddy, Jamie Saft 
he lives out near Woodstock. Um, it was a casual hang since he was our friend, and we got to kind of improvise more than we've ever been able to do in a in a studio situation. You know, usually you're kind of on the clock and trying to get your 12 songs down or whatever. So we would jam late night and uh, listen back later and see if there was anything in there. And those became the homie tracks. There's three of them. And we performed those uh, one and two. Um, and they're different as I'd be curious to hear what you thought um, compared to hearing them on the record because they are sort of loose and uh, improvised. But it was fun to do them. And it was really fun. Like the heavy part at the end of Homie 2, uh, that was just a bass riff that Luke improvised in the studio. And I put guitar overdubs like metal overdubs over it so we'd never done that before and so that was really fun playing that live and being like wow this was just kind of an in the moment something luke was feeling that is now a composed part of a song so that was fun and i'm yeah i'm curious what you thought of the homie tracks i was wondering how you guys were gonna uh, approach it i just adore that especially that heavy part at the end you know, it's just very fulfilling to a guy like me as I wrote about nice. the story. But it also Yo, is a great bridge between Tonberry, which, you know, is like such an epic already. And I know your fans feel that way when I read the comments and stuff or when the album came out. A lot of people were heavy on, on the Tonberry. But like Machine Elf is such a different sound and such a bold leap. And I, I thought that homie dose was a nice bridge there and and enabled you to sort of navigate that space and it was also cool just to hear like what as you described what i already knew was like an improvisational thing recreated it was you know it was clearly the same ideas but not note for note identical and it gives a personality and sort of keeps it alive so i i enjoyed it man i'm new to the band you know i've still never really seen a full set live so i didn't really know what to expect and as part of the reason why I wanted to talk now, juxtaposed to when we talked right around when the album was coming out, because I listened to the record a ton in the interim and got the opportunity to see you perform it. Is is it difficult to uh, authentically recreate? Because you do a lot of studio tricks, bells and whistles, you know, in terms of sound design and synths and all kinds of stuff that's outside of the normal paradigm of the power trio, guitar, bass, drums. You know, we're a long way from Disraeli gears. Do, are you conscious of any kind of, okay, how do we recreate this on stage? You know, the, is that a difficult thing to do? Is that something that comes natural? Yep. A lot of the electronic stuff we have kind of in our samplers and stuff, just at the ready. But the, like, Tonberry, for example, that guitar at the end is, like, quadruple tracked in the studio. So that, to me, is really... uh the sort of like, uh-oh, is this going to sound big for people? But I have to say, when I listen back to Stackpole's mix, uh, shout out Andy Stackpole, uh, the engineer, I, I have to say, like, in my car, it was pretty bumping. And it, there was even one point when I was hearing Snell's Fleetback, and I, like, thought someone had the record on. So, like, that's a good sign. Like, it still sounded powerful to me. I'm glad you felt the same way, because you know the record. Because that... Riff at the end of Tonberry is, you know, some of the it's most like just hellhammer, just sludgy shit I've ever heard from anyone. And <laughs> I, I did find myself thinking like, I want to stand in a room and hear this. I and more so, I want to put my head in a Marshall stack. Yeah, you want to feel the air, right? That said, you're right. The mix was was really, uh, it was big and chunky. But also had definition, because a lot of times with that really chunky, heavy, distorted, palm-muted, 
it, the dynamics and the sort of the notes and the nuance can get lost in the enormity of the sound. And that didn't happen. I even did one time through in headphones and really can hear the intri intricacies. And I think that's really the beauty of Ancient Homies to me, outside of the really euphoric, aggressive sort of like, I can run through a wall to this music. There's so much nuance. So if we get shift gears, maybe my entry point is Ancient Homies, you know? So I don't have all the history. A lot of times I'm able to meet an artist there, but you're going to have to tell me that story. But I can meet you there with Ancient Homies, so I kind of want to start there. What did you learn from this recording experience from being able to sit around smoke bongs jam through the night sleep under the piano all that shit how did that affect your creative process versus the regimented we have the studio from 10 to 6 today for the next four days it's the first time we got to go in a studio and not be like all right we have one week to do these songs we've prepared and like we're on the crunch this was like we're recording with our homie jamie saft um incredible jazz pianist um He's the only dude who to this day has ever sat in with bad brains. Uh, he's a man. Uh, he's done organ shit for the beasties. Anyway, he lives near Woodstock. We went to his spot and just, we were able to kind of be a little more free, you know, rip the bong in the studio, hang out. He would leave it recording at night and go upstairs and go to bed and just let us, let us go. So that was like the first time we had the luxury of like, we can just totally off the clock improvise and then see if anything is worth keeping in there, you know? But sometimes limitations are the best. If you know you have three hours to lay down these guitars or whatever, you're going to you know, really focus and hopefully do something good. So I think it's just a different thing. I think we were really excited to work in a different way this time, to, to take an improv we did in the studio and learn the bass line Luke was playing and record guitar over that. We'd never gotten to do that. It was just fun and a learning experience. And now we know we can work in this way, You know, do it a little more DIY in our studio. Like, did you have a, a fourth voice, a producer, uh, somebody with any uh, cachet that you turn to for, you know, constructive criticism or in lieu of a producer engineer? You were always showing our friends, bouncing it off our team members, our crew. Yeah, it was a long process. I mean, we April or when we started kind of compiling everything and then this summer we're mixing it and uh, going back and forth about it. It's hard. It's a hard to look back at it and even really remember like who was show, who was chiming in who was who rebounding right. stuff off of because it was quite a process i mean i remember being on vacation with my family like grilling fish and like talking to david the mixing engineer like you know just constant calls it was great it was fun to work but it was like consuming very consuming right on i'm reminded of an interview with larry lalonde guitarist for primus Lur. he was yeah. on the, he was on the dean del rey podcast and he's talking about the early years of primus how Les, was, Les Claypool was extremely resourceful in DIY. I mean, he recorded their first record like with a loan from his dad. Um, he's doing art himself. He's going to record stores, driving it around. He, uh, he, he just kind of had this, hey, guys, we can do this mentality. And um, I think I learned, yeah, I think H&M has definitely taught us that we can do stuff here at the music cellar and we can do stuff remotely and send stuff back and forth and still get a pretty... Uh, good fidelity and even more than fidelity i mean pretty good fidelity is putting it lightly man i love the sound design on the new record it's so dynamic in the headphones it's so big and and juicy and emotional and, and so i want to ask layers. you i want to ask you at the end of tonberry like when it's all those layers of guitar what's the balance of okay we're going to use the recording studio as to paint 
you know, a beautiful picture like the Beatles did with Sgt. Pepper. But when is it too much? And when is it like, we can't recreate this live? Where do you kind of draw the line? Like, should we keep quadruple tracking metal guitars if it's not going to sound quite as gnarly in a live setting? Well, I mean, of course, it's not for me to say, especially since I'm new to the Les Special game. But uh, that said, and I appreciate you turning around and asking me a question. I have such a visceral, physical, spiritual experience with the Tonberry uh, sort of coda. It begins with that really hammering breakdown and guitars. So I wouldn't sacrifice that for anything, even if you can't recreate it live. If you think about some of the great metal records, like Justice didn't sound like Justice Live, even if it was great. Like, there's a lot of studio tricks that, you know, has been written about for years. About you could probably th- hear the bass player better live, though. Oh, well, <laughs> goes without saying. <laughs> Remind me to send you and Justice for Jason, which is somebody took... Hell pain- yeah! Painstakingly did a mix where they just put bass in it. It's incredible. I've seen that, and I've listened to the Black album of that, too. Yeah. but uh, So I don't think you should uh, consider that, no. I, I, just Isn't that pro- interesting, though, that, like, the recording studio can either be... Uh, a camera, like it takes a photograph of, of the band, exactly how they sound live, or it can be used to literally paint like Sergeant Pepper style and just layer things that you could never layer. I just, Oh, it's such an endless world. It excites me. What I would want to turn the question back on you is, are you make, are you making the records to play them live or are you making them for the listening experience? Cause I think in the quote unquote jam band, uh, universe, the live, element is most sacred most sought and really what spins the wheel so whether you're the grateful dead or whoever they almost always made records save for one or two that were just kind of like okay this is the batch of songs that that we're going to take on the road and then the real magic happened in whatever city that they caught lightning in a bottle but i don't know and again i came to the band at ancient homies so i don't have a frame of reference for the journey but for me the listening experience of the album is so potent that it doesn't feel like it's a stepping stone to the to the performance to me the record is the record like i could never see you guys live and i'll go back to this album for the rest of my life but the flip side is do you make the songs like, man, when we get this one out live, we're going to play this section for the next two minutes, which you wouldn't do on a record, but you might write that section because you know it's going to be a real... Is that something you discuss? Do you consider? Do you talk about it in the studio? Like, man, maybe we shouldn't because we'll never recreate this live. Or does that make it maybe more special, more exclusive, like higher art? We can only accomplish this in the studio. Oh, man. Well, I guess we've always done the snapshot technique where we play live together all at once you know do takes usually not to a click track just how we've always played together but i guess to answer your earlier question um more is that maybe with this album we started to explore the other end of the coin um more and maybe do things that are harder to do live or or didn't come together in a live setting um using the studio to paint more um so they both excite me they're both different processes um so but i think it's nice to finally start exploring that other method what did you bring each to the studio for ancient homies because you're obviously during the pandemic 
you mentioned you'd played some songs live already. I, I remember reading somewhere that there was like version of the vessel already in circulation in some capacity. But how did you guys show up? Did you have ideas on like, you know, a USB stick? Like, were you sending stuff around for months in advance? How did you, before you showed up at Jamie's, since you couldn't really get together and gig or really practice all that often, if at all, how did you accumulate material ideas? And then what was the process of like sharing them and stitching together the songs from those ideas? So we always go into the studio with a batch of songs. If we're lucky, we can write something the night before or jam something the night before. We've done that actually on both the previous records. Um, there's a song on each that was made the night before but uh for this one we had um like machine elf and the vessel those are pretty old songs we've been playing those live for a long time um boundary is from back in uh 2016 and we hadn't been in the studio in a while really we, we were touring so hard those last few years um that these were really live tracks just being honed live so when we ran into the studio we had those we had snell's tonberry those were a little more recent songs that luke brought to the band um, we had repeaters sort of sitting on my laptop, evolving slowly, same with egg time. And then, of course, the homies were jams. But we, we just went in and kind of played the songs the way we play them live, perfect them as we go. Word. That's amazing because it sounds like such a studio creation of, you, you reference like a Sgt. Pepper, and, and just in terms of intention, like there's, it's not just like a band in a room. But it sounds like really it was, which makes it even more remarkable. And you reference like, you know, Luke bringing songs. And again, I'm going to ask a lot of maybe basic B questions because I'm new here. Good. But how does the division of writing or producing or lyric writing, how does that break down amongst the three of you? Uh, we do the Radiohead thing where we just, everybody is a third of a writer for each song. Even if Luke brings a riff or I bring something from the riff pile or chord progression, or lyrics. It's We all write our own parts. We're, we've always been a collaborative band, democracy. Lyrics are usually me, because I'm usually the one singing, but Luke has a great song called American Apocalypse that was on the last record, Cheen. Really, really awesome imagery and lyrics. Uh, he also sings and wrote a song called Optimus Prime Slot on OmniSquid. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a collaborative relationship. Will Luke write lyrics that you'll sing? Or a melody that you'll sing? I would love to do that. I mean, I guess, yeah, on American Apocalypse, um, I sing the choruses with him. Um, it would be really cool, actually, for him to write lyrics for me to sing lead on. Um, he's a great writer, him and Rory. So we should, that's just another thing to try. But that, uh, that breakdown, that sort of one-third man across the board, that democracy, obviously rooted in you know, your path, your history of band. Yep. I think that's really remarkable. I found you guys, you've been a band for 15 years, same three dudes going back to high school. So let's go back to Connecticut and talk just a little bit about you coming up as a youngster, encountering Rory and Luke. Uh, Luke saw Rory play in the gym with another band and they had him up on these like wrestling mats and he had like a drum riser. And uh, he thought it was so cool that he was like, mom, please buy me a guitar. And she got him a guitar of the Whammy Bar, so they let him in the band because they thought the Whammy Bar was cool. So <laughs> Roots Go Deep, been playing together for, for ages, ancient homies. Word, word. So where did you all come together 15 years ago? Uh, Housatonic High School in Northwest Connecticut. So it's like right in the Berkshires, kind of like Appalachian Trail, New York, Connecticut, Mass, Corner. Right on. 
I met Rory in like school band. He had like frosted tips and like a corn t-shirt on. We just started talking. And when we started jamming, I was in a band on drums with Luke. And when we started jamming with the three of us, they were just such a tight uh, drum and bass rhythm section. I mean, they'd been playing together since fifth grade uh, that it was like, all right, John, you, you got to play guitar. So I basically, all, I had played acoustic for a couple of years, but I really didn't pick up an electric guitar until I started jamming in the basement, and, like borrowed a guitar and some pedals to, to jam with these guys. And then, you know, they dragged me to a Primus show. I shouldn't say dragged. I was, I was, they got me into Primus, which is obviously huge for us. Um, we were just buddies. We were going to Medeski concerts together uh, in my station wagon. And um, we just all shared a passion for cool exploratory music. Help me out here. Back in 2003, 4, 5, whenever this is, are the same kids going to Medeski, Martin, and Wood that are going to Corn that are going to Primus? Good question. Not Probably not so much, though. But you know what? Mike Chappelle, he drove us to the Medeski Martin Wood Clinic at Trinity College. Um, and he also was like a huge corn guy back in the day. So, yeah, you know what? There's definitely some crossover. Probably probably more so with Primus and Medeski Martin Wood. Speaking of which, which, there's a recording somewhere that I really need to find. Maybe you can help me. Uh, at the Jammy Awards, Les Claypool actually played with Medeski Martin and Wood. They did a Lively Up Yourself and I think Bemsha Swing by Thelonious Monk. I could be wrong. And there, that's like two of our worlds colliding, like huge hero status for us. So if anyone out there has any footage from that or anything, I would love to see that. I'll put the SOS out, man. You know, I remember nice. those jammies. Maybe someone who's listening to the pod might have an idea as to how to locate that performance. I mean, I love the putting musicians together like that. Like, it's my dream to do, like, a co-laboratory, I've always wanted to call it, and, like, put, like, you know, uh, Adam Deitch with Colin Greenwood from Radiohead on bass and just, like, put different musicians together who kind of speak speak the language and that shit fascinates me. It'd be really cool to hear, you know, have Radiohead see Soul Live in concert. I've always wanted Radiohead to sit front row for fucking Soul Live doing like a James Brown jam. It's just so powerful. I, they, they would love it. Yeah, man. Those are some interesting ideas. And then, you know, that goes on like a lot down at Jazz Fest and has for years. And it did to a lesser extent at Bear Creek. Um, which is a beloved funk festival we went to for many years. But yeah, I find that can be like really hit or miss with the whole super jam thing, especially when it becomes old hat and it's the same songs and stuff. But when like the first time I saw that happen was Oysterhead at uh, Jazz Fest New Orleans in 2000, which was what actually got me there because I was a big Primus fan, huge Fish fan. Um, and of course, Stuart Copeland on drums, but the very first Garage La Trois show was the opening act for, we just talked to Mike Dillon about this on the last pod, but yeah, those were two really just like all-star assemblies that... Did you say 07? No, 2000. Holy shit. Yeah, it was my first Garage Jazz Fest. Garage opened for Oysterhead? Yeah, both of their first gigs. And wow. yeah, it was just unbelievable experience. And so I, I, and there was so much promise to what, what could be. And like, you know, they have run with that with, you know, Bonnaroo does a really cool super jam or not unlike what you're dreaming, you know, where they have, you know, Quest Love and D'Angelo playing Zeppelin with Kraz <laughs> and like Beck and, you know, just all these superstars kind of coming together and doing fun stuff. But. Love it. 
it can also go off the rails and, and be just a wank fest yep. too. <laughs> and, and that's a good, uh, pivot because I wanted to talk about the jam band thing a little bit. You know, uh, I remember seeing something on your special social, but like, are we a jam band? You know, yes or no. And I was like, ready to fight. No. You know, even though I just got here five minutes ago, like, out there's a reason to go, you know. But at the same time, you know, the jam band audience, I'm going to tell you a quick aside. I, I mentioned that, you know, I was so moved by ancient homies that I sent it to my ancient homies, the kids I grew up, because I played music for many years, and I know I told you about that. And I was in a band in my elementary school and all the way up through high school with a fellow named Gabe Rock and Steve Malik. Shout out those guys in case they happen to be tuning in. And I don't talk to them that often anymore, but it was important for me to send them your record for all these like symbiotic reasons. Not the least of which is we were really heavy music guys before we found the dead and fish and all that stuff. And I said to Gabe, because uh, he was asking about your rig and went online and went and checked you out and all that stuff. And I was like, man, tell me these guys are not a jam band. And he didn't know about the conversation or the question or whatever, just, I just kind of made an offhand comment. He was like, only a jam band audience has the wingspan to appreciate all the different things that you do because you're too dance music for a, a death metal guy or a hardcore guy and you're, you know, way too heavy for a rave. But the jam band fan that loves the Beastie Boys and Tipper and, and Justice for All has room for all the flavors of the special. And that brought me back to the audience thing, which is like jam band is not the band, it's the audience. I mean, we, we've talked about wanting to break away and like get beyond that. But at the same time, it's like, God bless the fucking jam scene for like giving us ears. Like what other scene has so many receptive listeners who will, you know, stand and listen to you, you jam. It's sort of, yeah, you could be an elitist and be like a uh, jam bands, but hey, they have a, potent musical scene that is generating the livings for certain musicians and right that's a, it's hard to be like a rock band you know and go and like be an alternative rock band how many alternative rock bands are like are making a living right now whereas there's some working bands on the jam scene that can can eke by and that's that's good that there's an open-minded scene for that you know i always bring it back to lettuce they ran from the jam band tag for so long i mean really eschew the tag and and try to distance themselves from it and more power yeah i mean and i i would tell anyone who listen this is not a jam band i still will but uh point is i think that shemines was making to me because i asked him that question in the pod do you see yourself as a jam band and it's like man it's just a a, a community those people support lettuce like a motherfucker so yeah. and i think the same could be said for your band because most of the people who got in my ear about the special did so from this community that's where we've been getting our bread and butter the festivals and the, the shows have been those scenes um speaking of lettuce though i mean listening to when you listen to their records and you hear how faithfully they carry the torch of like james brown and sly and how well put together and crafted their their funk arrangements are it's like that's testament enough that this isn't just another jam band like they are masters um, they're paying homage, they're carrying its things forward and evolving, but doing their fucking homework like it is so disciplined and well put together that I, I figure anyone who listens to that hopefully will pick up on that 
that uh, discipline, really. So whereas the jam band thing is sometimes thought of as loose. and But again, it's a tolerant scene of ears. And that's great that we have that. Do you see yourselves of the jam band culture? Uh, do you play to a jam band audience? And where does the electronic, because I know you have tons of remixes and collaborations with all kinds of electronic artists. Where does that come into the spectrum? So the jam band thing, I'm kind of with you, B, like my hate and years are done. Like you say what you want about jam band festivals, but this is some open-minded motherfuckers for music and for exploratory bands and experimental shit. I mean, you see jazzy shit, you see hip hop, you see it runs the gamut. So we're grateful for that cradle, you know, here on the East coast and out to Colorado and California, whatever. It's been good to us, whether or not we're a jam band. I mean, I don't even really like genre names. It's like music is all the same. It's all one of the same, you know, it's just frequencies arranged differently. And, um, you know, modest mouse fucking jams on their long drive album. There's like, like television, uh, they have long extended guitar jams, uh, Neil Young, like, but it's like, it's kind of like you said, it's the fans. It's, it's kind of, to me, it's like, it's what, what they're wearing. It's like, I've always said you could like have a band that sounds kind of like a vintage Neil Young kind of fuzzed out rock band. You could kind of dress them all wookish. They'd be called a, people might dub them a jam band. Whereas you dress them in skinny jeans, it's like they're indie rock. It's kind of just all marketing bullshit. So I don't even like to compartmentalize so much. Um, we dance is a huge element. We want people to, we want there to be groove. Uh, we want, you know, to pay homage to the traditions and the lineage before us, um, you know, be it jazz or Afrobeat or Afro-Cuban, like, it, you know, that's sacred to us, like the music and movement, music to elevate people. But, you know, call it what you want it. Um, we We don't really say whether or not we are, you know, that's for the listener to decide, maybe. Uh, as far as electronic, um, we just love electronic music. I know you and I have talked a lot about that. We just kind of take elements of what we like and put it all together. And no, no uh, deliberate, like we're trying to make this genre of song right now. It's just sort of, let's get this vibe. Or like, remember that sick uh, Nine Inch Nails show we saw when they came out and the lights were on and then it flashed off and it, the bass hit. Like, let's do something like that. Like, it's more like that approach. Interesting you reference both it being deliberate and Nine Inch Nails, because that's exactly what I was thinking. Some of the, I don't want to say like accoutrements or elements that you employ, sort of uh, synthetic sounds, bass tones, synths, um, a certain guitar tone that I noticed you use, which is distorted, but also like strangely computerized. Those are all things that were first introduced to me through Trent, through Nine Inch Nails, who made unapologetically violent, heavy music you could mm -hmm. dance to. And like Pretty Hate Machine, Broken, that was revolutionary because, yeah, we had Slayer, Metallica, and then you also had like Depeche Mode or if you want to get in, Ministry, KM, FDM, all these, as you so eloquently stated, compartmentalized bands uh, of they're this or they're that. and Trent just threw that shit out the window and just made art as he heard it and felt it. And um, I see the lineage there. Maybe now, having watched you perform live on the stream and even hearing you touch on Wish, there's a lineage there. And I don't know. I think that, especially in the quote-unquote jam band scene, uh, you'll hear a lot of bands working in 
elements of electronic music with the Amen break or uh, some drum and bass stuff or really, you know, heavy handed womp. And it, it doesn't always work. So I was curious, you know, in essence, like, is there a band member that is a you or is everyone as attuned to Aphex Twin and Tipper? Is there, are there discussions amongst y'all like, hey man, let's really make this like crunk or is it just how it comes out? A little of both, but no, we're all huge into electronic music. I mean, Luke's a DJ. Uh, you know, Rory might have been the person who got me into Aphex Twin first. You know, he's back there sampling, glitching. Luke plays a synth. I play a synth and a sampler. We actually just got Luke a sampler for his birthday. Um, no, we all love, you know, we went through a big tipper phase. We've, you know, we've played Camp Bisco and geeked out to some of the, the crazy electronic shit on that lineup. Uh, been to, like, you know, dub warehouse parties and we we love that world so that's definitely a shared influence got you know remixes with different electronic artists and stuff do you you send that stuff out do you reach out to some of your people in that world and say hey you want to flip this or are they taking upon themselves to you know re reimagine your music we i just sent some stems to art um hope i hear back. oh wow that's amazing yeah, he's a really, he's a good buddy. Um, he's supported us, like, sent him some merch over the years, and he's worn it, and uh, we're, we're huge fans of his music. He's an extremely busy guy, um, but uh, I think Yeti, uh, I hit him up. He was interested. Essex, who did the album art, he wanted stems for egg time in the vessel, so he might be cooking something up. Um, I realize with producers, you don't, you just kind of let it, the snake doesn't shed its skin overnight. Just let it, like, don't have to rush the remix album. It could come out in, on the anniversary of Ancient Homies in three years. Like, it doesn't matter. Just let that music kind of uh, percolate on people's hard drives and see what crazy shit they come out with. Jules actually just did a house remix of Egg Time that's pretty fucking bonkers as well. Word. Yeah, as a, I told you, Jules is who first told me about your band. I met him on a pot farm out here. And what a small world. It really is. on a pot farm in California, and he's like lives 40 minutes from my house. We have, we share a dear mutual friend, Mikey Dredd, who's a major part of my life. So met Jules over there. We were talking shop, talking music. And yeah, he was touring with his own band at the time. And this was kind of like a stopover for gas money and to hang and work a little bit. And I think, uh, yeah, he was just super hype on y'all. Told me about four times before we parted company and it stuck with me. Yeah, we have another mutual friend, Jackson Whalen, who's going to come on this pod again one of these days. Oh, yeah. But uh, he's my good friend as well. Yeah, he mentioned that. Yeah, he mentioned did you that. Meet, did you meet his band on the pop room? Did he have a uh, kid with long red hair? Yeah, he had one homie with long hair with him who I don't recall Yo. who it was. So that dude is a, is like one of the most beastly guitarists on the entire planet. That's Sam McGarity. He's, he lives in our town. We played at the Battle of the Bands in high school with you know his band and La Special were on the bill. That kid practices seven hours a day just like absolutely bonkers like shreddy tappy arpeggios like he's going to be the next big thing for sure and he's a sweetheart yeah you got to big up the hometown crew Small and that's actually world. the same place i met jackson was the same homies farm and uh i sat actually and worked side by side with jackson for months and months and we listened to hip-hop pods and talked about life and became pretty Sick. pretty tight friends so yeah when he saw me like you know standing for y'all he was just like what you know, they're from my town. I know those guys. I'm like, oh, I know. I put the dots together. So but yeah. he was in a band with Essex, who did the album art. 
Yeah, you know, he mentioned that a while ago. This is wild. Homies blurring into one, man. Gathering. And we already did touch on Burkfest off the record, but that's where my whole comprehension of this whole scene comes from, is going to Burkfest, covering Burkfest for a couple of years with Jam Bass. And I understand you were at, you were a youngster hitting those fests, which is like in basically your backyard, right? What was that like as a kid? Uh, Do you remember the Relics? Do you remember the Relics article? Uh, does size matter? It was like small festivals. And it was the picture of Burkfest with two people sitting on the hill. And that's, that was it. It was, it was like the magazine. Yep, it was yeah, in the yes. magazine. It was like a grassy hill. And it said, does size matter, I think. And it had two people on it. Uh, one of them was like my sister's boyfriend in high school. Like <laughs> That was like our hometown festival. Like It changed everything for me. I was 14. I was like a little techno kid. And the New Deal just fucking pulled my brain out of my skull. You know, oh, yeah. everyone on that lineup, Modesky, Martin Woods, Soul Live, monster lineup in the sort of hiatus days when these bands weren't super huge yet, you know, Sound Tribe. Oh, I remember um, those tribe shows, especially that night show in the ski lodge, 100 plus degrees was just so hot. Ridiculous. And you told me Lettuce played in the lodge. I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't privy to Lettuce back then. I was a huge, like, Soul Live kid. I was there with, like, my jazz band buddies. Um, but we loved it so much. The next year, I got appendicitis and was literally like in the hospital getting surgery while oh. Modeski was playing, and uh, convinced them to let me out the next day. Like I'm like morphined up, watching the Flaming Lips from like a lawn chair, getting my head again scooped out. They literally had a visual of a guy scooping out a piece of his brain and doing a line of it on a toilet seat. And there's some dude next to me, some bro, just like "fuck you." no he's like flipping off the stage but <laughs> it was the most stunning show i'd ever seen in my life just like wayne coins like it was just gonna be like a big a big birthday party and he, he actually like sang happy birthday to he found a couple people in the audience whose birthday it was like got everyone to sing happy birthday to him it was visually explosive i mean they had footage of like that famous photo of the execution in vietnam but they had like a video of it and it would, the guy would fall and then it would zoom out to the universe and it, and like the solar system and then the universe and absolutely cosmic people in animal suits jumping all around the stage. So yeah, that shit really Burkfest started it all for me. Like, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today if I hadn't gone to that two years and really just gotten deep into the music and yeah. Yeah. We probably walked by each other. I'm sure we did, point. man. I mean, me and my best buddy growing up, Robbie WK, who went to BU and was super dialed in like that, you know, let soul live actual proof, D'Antoni Parks whole thing. Uh, he, he hit and he was like, he ended up being like tour manager for the slip for years. And that was his, his the world. Slip. Yeah, that was his world. So, uh, and I had the jam bass thing happening. So we, you know, with the kid I met on the Hebrew bus who's been, and I've seen fish more times than I can count with him. Uh, we like went up there together and, and wrote this story. And, uh, then I did it by myself the following year, but Burkfest was a huge formative experience for me too, even though it wasn't like my introduction to everything, just you talk about like the size matter and having been to some larger events and of course, arena shows and all that stuff. And then just getting into nightclubs at that point in time, because I, you know, I'm 21, 22, 23. So that was like the best of both worlds, you know, plus the, the beautiful natural environs of, you know, the basin and the Berkshires. And of course, 
the lineups were so eclectic. And what I was going to get at is, it's a shame because Bear Creek suffered a similar fate. Berkfest, a lot of it was like weather and rain and stuff. But at the end of the day, like, there's all kinds of financial shortcomings yeah. that, that <laughs> killed the event, you know, and, and killed sad, the vibe. Yeah. It happened differently at Bear Creek, but same ending, you know, eight years. But still, it was like... Both of those events were so unique in, in a cookie cutter world of festivals then and now. But both of those stuck out because of the lineups and the collective sort of community familial aspect that wasn't just like some hippie bullshit, but was really felt like it uh, permeated. So people took the festival and the relationships and the music home with them to the various cities. And this whole fertile scene blossomed. And I would say like your band is kind of like the third generation to come from that seed that was born during the fish hiatus and, and, you know, so many tentacles to that organism. And it's, it, that to me is, you could say what you want about guitar solos, but jam band to me is that, that intangible diaspora born out of that culture. And look at all the music that we've touched on that is in some way connected to that, that organism. And I don't know that that exists, especially for people in their 30s, 40s, and older. In a whole lot of scenes, you know, scenes are young. Yeah, they're real. There's like fads. What's hot now might not be in two, three years, no matter how high the art is. Yet we support our artists, our events, and you're seeing that during COVID a lot. Is is as evidenced by how much your fans turned out for you the other night. Like, it's a beautiful thing. So as much as we want to be hard on how corny some of the shit in the scene is, at the end of the day, it's a blessing, and I'm grateful for it. And that's why I put so much energy into this program. That's why I put so much energy into the review I wrote, because when you have a relationship to music like I developed with that record, it's, it's like my duty to tell the world how potent it is. and. I think that what's special is really just at the avant-garde of what's possible beyond jam band. It touches in so many different directions. And that's why I have all these like, tell me about this, tell me about that questions, because I'm uh, enamored with uh, the kaleidoscopic nature of the music. That means a lot coming from you, man, because I've read, you're obviously a man who knows music in and out. and I really enjoy reading the words you put to describing you know, the sounds you hear and the feelings he gives you. So thank you. That means a lot coming from you. High praise. There's so much more to touch on that I got to go to the classical stuff, the Hall of the Mountain King, because we had that amazing <laughs> sort of symbiotic thing where I was like, yeah, I used to play this song on piano when I was a kid. And you're like, fuck out of here. Are you serious? Where does classical music fit into your story? And yeah, why is that piece of music from Grieg so precious to you? Oh, man, we love that one. We've covered that one. It's just, I call it like the first metal piece ever written. I mean, it sounds kind of like a palm muted guitar riff, right? When it gets going, yeah. it's staccato, it's sharp, it's menacing, minor key, it's intense, there's crashing cymbals. It sounds like a Metallica, John, honestly. But that whole suite, I mean, I love the beauty and the Aze's death and uh, mourning. And uh, it's just a wonderful, I, I love classical music. I don't know how much it permeates into our music. I guess you could hear a little maybe on Omni Squid, some of the, the melodic themes, they sort of have a movie score quality. Um, we love doing scoring stuff. Um, we just did a thing for Vice uh, called Source Material, which is a all-found footage of the Australian bushfires. It's a really intense, dark 
episode Whoa. that we we had the challenge of you know putting appropriate music to. I guess you could say tritome is you know sort of drawing influence from classical themes or variations or you know it's played on a piano so i'd like to think it's in there but uh i can't claim that it is for sure you know i don't know if you hear it definitely some of the themes some of the grandiose sort of cinematic euphoric nature um inside tonberry for instance it's probably mm-hmm. pro a prog to some years and i'm sure it is but even prog is a lot of it's rooted in that really grandiose classical stuff but yeah i just you know was interested to hear like when does that come into your life? Because you're like, you said you were a techno kid and you were a drummer. Like, what is your introduction? For me, my mom took me to the orchestra, Philadelphia Orchestra, one Saturday Yo, month. Yo, same here. And yeah, then, yeah, playing, and then playing classical piano because I was forced to. I just gravitated to that piece of music. So your mom took you to the orchestra where you, were no, you like... No, she didn't take me to the orchestra, but she, she got me music and piano lessons and shit. Um, and I think that's where my appreciation, I mean, we still talk about classical together and like I'll send her pieces or we've been listening to like Thomas Tallis or like Carl Orff, like, you know, choral, really beautiful cathedral, like just vocals. I love that shit. It's great for sampling for hip hop beats and stuff. So yeah, we both, that's cool. Our, our moms turned us on to the, uh, that whole world. I still love it to this day. So was piano your first instrument then? Uh, I was like trumpet in fifth grade in school band, reading music a little, and then piano lessons out of that. I didn't really stick with too much reading. You know, I sang in jazz choirs in high school and like doo-ops and stuff. And you, you do a little sight reading for that. Once it, once I was playing guitar, it was more just by ear and, you know, learning the, learning the notes, but not really reading off a paper, off a page anymore. But I still listen to it. I love uh, love Debussy and piano music and I'll chip away on my piano at like Claire de Lune or whatever. Like, you know, I'll read one measure every couple months when I have time to learn a little more of it. I, I love classical a lot for sure. Do you primarily write music on the guitar though? Yeah. Or like I'll make a beat in the computer, but yeah, it's a lot of it is riffing, riffing on the guitar. I'm trying to write more in my head and like from my heart and my mind. And then, transfer that to the instrument because i feel like that's more connected so you know writing with my voice a little more like i'll sit, i'll be driving and i'll like hear something and i'll sing it into my voice memos and then try to make a baseline out of that because to me that's like a little more to the source whereas the guitar can kind of play you sometimes you know you get into licks or habits or convenient patterns but at the end of the day we want to play we want to sing through our instrument. Like Kraz always talks about that. He's like, you want to sound like a vocalist. You don't want to just play the guitar, you know, or let it play you. So I've been doing, trying to do that a little more, like right from my, my mind. That's beautiful. Really well articulated, man. I know what you mean. Like to be able to sing the solo, it's like something primordial about that. So it's like melody and and emotion. And so for that to come from an organic place and not, as you say, because you do hear that, with guitar players in general, if you listen to them enough, you know, they got their go-to sort of fallback riffs or, you know, something they know that works. So yep. keep going to the same well and pushing I remember yourself. tripping acid in college and my buddy just holding a guitar. We were jamming for a while and he's holding the guitar and he kind of just looks at the floor and he like drops his hands down. He's like, man, you ever feel like the guitar is just playing you? Like, I'll never forget that. Cause like I do sort of know what he means. <laughs> he was like tripping and kind of frustrated that maybe what was in his mind wasn't coming out of the instrument, but Hey, that's why we practice True, But it also got to work the other way. Cause you hear artists saying like, I'm just a vessel. I'm just a channeling. Like the music is coming through me. It's not 
of me. You know, I'm all for that as well. I totally believe that. Yep. It works both ways. I guess it's reciprocal. Like, and you've referenced making beats, right? So, yeah, we got to go there for a bit. Outside of the special, like, what kind of production are you into? And, you know, who are, you know, like, the, the gods that maybe, like, blew your mind on a production level? I, I have a feeling I know who you're going to say, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> no, tell me. I think I know who you think I'm going to say. I mean, obviously, Dilla. Let's start there. Yep. And uh, Flying Lotus. Of um, course. I told you that Borum left a sick mix in my Ford Explorer years ago that had uh, Backpack Caviar by Flying Lotus. And that track just fucking blew my head open and uh, went down a long rabbit hole with him. Speaking of getting up, or uh, when we're creating late at night versus morning, I just listened to him on Rick Rubin's podcast. He's been getting up at like mad early in the morning and working on music, which is cool. He said, I think that was like a new thing for him. Um, he sort of had a shift. He's like, yeah, I just can't, uh, I just go to bed early now, which is interesting because his music is so late night sounding to me. Yeah, um, for sure. But he's also, you know, he's really pushed those limits in a lot of ways on the last several albums gone really deep. So I could see him wanting to maybe bring it back to the light. Where, what are you making the beats on, and, and what kind of beats are you making? How do you sample? Are you sampling vinyl? You no, know, I used to do that. Uh, I had a guitar lesson with Shmeen, with Shmeen's once, and he showed me this little BBE box that you can get that allows you to sample off vinyl. It like brings it up to level so you can get it into your computer without too much static. So I, and I, I've been thinking lately, like, fuck, I really got to do that. I haven't sampled off a record in so long but there's a quality to it. You know, at the same time, though, now you can download, like, vinyl sample packs that someone else sampled off a record. So it's, I guess there's no difference. But, uh, yeah, I've done some of that. I uh, use Ableton. Um, shout out Jules again. He kind of is my uh, tech support there. He, he kind of taught me how to use the program um, early on. I remember being at his house. He's playing the drums. He's like, all right, record a clip. I like, didn't even know how to do that much back then. And now I've, I know my way around it pretty well. I'll do... Uh, I'll sample, um, you know, I'll play, mess around on a synth for a long time and then chop stuff out of that, parts that I like, or I'll lay down a drum beat on the drum kit um, and make a loop. It, really, it's recording back to the endless nature of recording. It's it's It can go so many directions that sometimes it's overwhelming. Um, but I like to explore and try different things. Lately, it's less been making, like, hip-hop beats. I went through a few years where I did a lot of that but more towards like, all right, if I'm going to sit down and like mess with Ableton, like let's see if it can't be something that can be channeled through a special or made into a special song, you know, cause clearly that's where the ears are. Not many people know my solo project shit. So I've been trying to really use, use time wisely for that too. We've got the whole studio set up now and mic'd up and Rory's drums have been living here. So really trying to just keep, keep creating and, any old projects that are sitting on the hard drive, trying to, you know, open them and see what needs to be done. And, Cause I don't like to have a ton of unfinished stuff. I really, I mean, I guess that's the reality. You're always going to have a mountain of unfinished beats, but it's really feels good to kind of get them out to people at the same time. And I'd be interested yeah. to hear whenever you do start putting stuff out, that's, you know, hip hop beats or whatever. Do you have like a producer name or anything like that? Or is it just kind of like a pet project? Yeah. It used to be stimulus clan and, uh, you know, it's like not. It's like probably 300 likes on Facebook or some shit. But I have a Bandcamp and a SoundCloud, and there's tons of old beats up there. I can send you some shit. But um, 
I've been thinking about that. Like, you know, I do have a lot of music, solo music, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, maybe I just release it as Johnny G, you know, along with my, like, acoustic recordings. I have a mad, like, acoustic folk covers, and um, so I'm thinking about maybe just putting a, a whole Johnny G band camp together one day, but in the meantime, just doing the special stuff. Right on. Yeah, Josh Blake does it like that. You know, he's got the hip-hop record he just put out. Before that, it was, like, Josh Blake acoustic band, just then one of him and his wife singing together. So just whatever kind of put it out there. And yeah, I think it, that's the beauty of this era of like releasing music digitally and stuff is that you don't have to have a whole campaign and a label, physical product. You just like on a whim, put some stuff out there. So I'd be definitely down to check out the SoundCloud. You have to send it my way. And nice, man. Appreciate I'd, it. Yeah, of course, man. I, I love your ideas, and I love the music I've heard thus far, and sure as shit, love talking music with you, so I imagine if you're inspired by Dilla and Flylo, I mean, come on, I'm going to dig. Um, and of course, we talked earlier a little bit about Deitch and drums and such. Yeah, he's so, got a mountain of beats. He right. showed me one once that it was him. He sampled his vacuum. I was like, what'd you sample? He's like, a vacuum. I'm like, what? And he had to literally, like, we were in, like, a loud room. He had to, like, you know... Uh, with his hand like motion like vacuum like to, i was like what he fucking made a beat out of his vacuum i want to hear that shit if he knew how adjacent to fish that was he'd be horrified oh god <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah let's talk adam just for a sec because i know we're both super inspired by him he's you know he's my favorite artist in music that's funny because Schmeez loves fish i never knew deitch wasn't in oh yeah place. they went to a show together as kids and they had wow. opposite reactions no shit. And that, oh, they, yeah, it's it's funny. And Schmeens does love fish, for sure. Well, that's great that they can coexist in a band and be so encouraging and motivating to each other and helping each other elevate musically and making this fucking amazing music while and have, you know, disparate influences. That's We're the same way. There's some bands maybe that I get down with that they don't get down with, too emo or something. You've referenced a few times that you, you know, you did some work with Break Science on the road. What was that like? And when was that? It was pretty nerve wracking. Uh, I was like a super fan, pretty green. Uh, this was like 07. I had, we'd been touring, but not like super hard. Like we did after that. I was, yeah, quite a fan. And, um, I drove them to a few gigs. They were opening for sound tribe and pretty lights. This was before pretty lights like exploded out here. So it was just like small shows at like the paradise. Uh, sorry. It was sound tribe, like PA sets. Um, we pulled up to one club in Westchester, PA, and Bam Margera was standing out front smoking, and turned out he owned the place. So I got to, like, meet Bam and tell him to check out Break Science, and I'll never forget, he, like, repeated it back, and he's like, Break Science? Like, he was actually, <laughs> he actually was interested in the artist that was playing in his bar, so I thought that was cool. But no, I mean, I look up to those dudes so much, um, that it was a great opportunity, but I probably wasn't, you know, their idea of the most ideal tour manager, you know, they were, I think they were around 30 at that time. They'd been doing it a long time. So, you know, if I did it again this year, it would be a lot better. <laughs> They've had their fair share of different folks in that role. So I'm sure you just blended right in and you've had the opportunity to be on the other end and had to count on a TM and understand how crucial being Johnny on the spot is in that scenario. Oh yeah. Like I, I can't believe what I put them through. Like, I think I, I picked Deitch up and then was like, yo, man, sorry, I got to, like, put a mirror on the left side of my Ford Explorer. Like, my mirror had been smashed off and, like, I hadn't dealt with it until, like, I picked Deitch up, which was a pretty rookie move. So they were probably like, who the fuck is this joker? Right on. 
Yeah, man. Well, maybe one day, you know, you guys can make some music together. Exactly. It would be a dream. But yeah, this For is sure. a big, big Deitch house, big lettuce house, big break signs. It's just anything he does. And so naturally, I already loved you and the music enough. But, you know, to know that you were a super fan and had some funny early era stories in that capacity is just, you know, just small world shit once again. I was a soul live geek all through like the jazz band high school days. Uh, we'd go see them all the time and Medeski and shit. And then I don't remember when I discovered Lettuce. I think, honestly, it was my buddies in northern Vermont saw them at, like, Club Metronome. And oh, yeah. We all got, I've been there a bunch got, of times. Yeah, great club, you know, above Nectar's. We all got uh, Rage, I think it was. And, like, we just spinned it for, like, an entire summer. Just such a good album. And I think that's when the, the, the lettuce craze hit. But, yeah, they're enormous influence for us. And we really look up to them and how much reverence they have for, like, the tradition of funk music. That's awesome. I bet Deitch would like Repeater. Yeah, well, I think he'd like Machine Elf and Boundary Dissolution, too. Um, oh, you're right. The Boundary, I bet him and Boren would be in the Boundary. A long-ass time ago, when I before I got close to the guys, I, was, I had a conversation with Adam in the like early dubstep era, 09, when it like, hit America. And he was hype on it, hype on like the, the UK shit, and like was talking about how he met Keith Shockley from the Bomb Squad at some UK dub party in Brooklyn, like just recently. Oh, and that wow. just stuck with me. Yeah. I thought but, you knew him since Bergfest 02. No, I, that was my first lettuce, second lettuce experience. And, uh, I was like super fan. Obviously had had a conversations with him, but no, I was like an annoying blah guy to him for a while. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then actually the way it worked was, uh, when they played at Bear Creek and I hadn't seen them since because they've been pretty much dormant, save for the occasional wetland show between 03 and 08. So I hadn't seen them in years and I had moved to Florida and it was my second Bear Creek. And when I wrote up the review, I referenced how they had teased Gangstar and like, yeah, yep. we've been homies ever since. That's how that happened. Schmeen's on the, like the real heavy guitar stuff. He's got appreciation oh, for some, I was going to say he would, I was going to assume he would be the least likely to be into the metal shit. I just think some of the guitar, like just, you know, much like my boy, uh, Gabe was like immediately hip to like your approach, your style. You wanted to see your rig. You know, Schmeen's is an axeman. He's a guitarist. Schmeen's is like really unique catfish style guitar. He, you know, he plays like catfish a lot. Totally. Like lead and rhythm at the same time and also atmospheric. This is great. Yeah. Like that Phyllis shit. Yeah. Yeah. Th that was like his coming out party for that. Style. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well said. You know. No, that's a great take. And you're right about um electronic music aspect. Deitch is the one who got me into Flying Lotus, him and Borum, which became like my favorite shit I'd ever heard. Like your music and the headphones, this record particularly, there's so much nuance and dynamics in the in the headphones. Like sound design wise, that you're hearing like I mentioned Amon Tobin to you before, but is what what are the influences from a sound design or quote unquote electronic or technological perspective? It oh, there's so much. I mean, I that's like all I listen to is electronic. Uh, Tipper, Aphex Twin, as far as like really sound designing using panning and the two uh, of the greatest ever. Yeah. Absolutely, Aphex is yeah, literally like Mozart of our generation. I think I love you know drum and bass, jungle music. Hive is a there's a Hive track everyone should might know from the Matrix soundtrack called Ultrasonic Sound, which samples Bad Brains, 
just like the heaviest and he makes it so much heavier uh it was in the matrix soundtrack that's a dope track that got me into hive he's dope i could go on there's so much electronic music i love it dub dub that too i i picked up on that where does the metal get into the picture what really hooked me on ancient homies is is how unabashedly metal it is but it's it, you can't put it just in a heavy metal bin but there's so much of what i love of incorporated into this in a really unique fresh way so i want to know because i'm a hesher since i got master puppets for hanukkah and cassette in 88 ah! and like yeah before i loved fish or the dead or anything else man and i'm still a headbanger i love the metal edge so you know how did that get into the picture for you and then uh for the special well they got me into primus in high school they're like you're coming to the show um so there's that i mean i grew up with you know alternative 90s rock it was like radio 104 coming out of hartford so i'm hearing like white zombie nirvana my sister goes to see a white zombie show um i was obsessed i like stole her cd listened to the shit out of it just heavy guitar tones um jay younger he's incredible jay fucking love that dude absolutely and i've just followed uh their bass player on instagram uh it's a cool blast from the past but yeah uh heavy music um obviously rage against the machine was huge for us mm-hmm. they were like my fa- i cried when they broke up um i was devastated i was so so deep into rage um same and then later years you know tool uh more genty stuff now we really like animals as leaders and chan and polyphia that's where the distorted guitar comes from, I guess. There was a band and when we were in high, I'll wrap up with this. There was a band when we were in high school called Chain Reaction. And they were from South Jersey. A couple of the guys went to our high school. And it was two dudes that were metal guys. The lead guitarist and the drummer. They were like Sepultura, Slayer, Anthrax, you know, metal. And the other two dudes were uh, straight edge punks. So Minor Threat, Agnostic Front, Seven Seconds, Shelter. And they made a demo tape, Chain Reaction did. And it's like the holy grail to our crew. Wow. Your, your record, Intangible Characteristic, not unlike that Chain Reaction demo. Interesting. Uh, when I heard it the first time, I was like, I thought to myself, self, this might be what Chain Reaction would have turned into sounding like 30 years later. You know, that, it's just, it's a really incredible blend of this sort of, I don't know if you even listen to hardcore, but it has this New York City hardcore pocket chunky pocket like and it also has those like really sort of you're probably robert fripp to you right the the king crimson shit but to me that's like you know merciful fate or maiden like really proggy metal and that was the marriage that was chain reaction the sort of really heavy proggy side of speed metal and the brute force and sort of funky pocket of hardcore so i'm sending my chain reaction buddies Dudes who love, they, one of them still has it on cassette. Wow, I want to hear that. And homies. I'll see if I get them to upload it for you. I love the metal with the, like you said, with the funky pocket. Like that's dope. That's not, yeah. not enough people do that. And yeah, man, like you were saying that, that it, you heard a similarity between Chain Reaction and us. It's like, we don't write this shit. This shit comes down. We're channeling, you know, I'm sure if you ask any of the lettuce dudes, they'd agree. Like we're just vessels. Um, so you're going to hear similarities. You're going to hear that thread in there it's, it's deep and it's an honor to be a part of it 15 years original lineup putting out amazing art 
testing the limits of what's possible and also being a major presence in your fans' lives during this period of time, putting out this record, doing the stuff you've done online, and, and of course, the New Year's thing, you know, shit is important now. That kind of stuff is like, you can't put a price or meaning on it. People are in such a weird, sad, they need hope, they need something to hold on to, and, and you all have provided that in a major way. And I speak for myself, you know, like, what what Ancient Homies has done for me since you so graciously uh, messaged me and said, hey, check out this record a, a month or so before it came out. Like, I can't thank you enough, man. I tried to in writing that article, but in general, like, the art, you know, is just so precious and so righteous. And knowing what I do now, knowing you like I do now, and, and hearing you talk about your reverence, the connection you have with your bandmates, and, like, what you strive to do in making the art, it just rings out, man. And so I'm happy and grateful that you reached out. You know, we're home, we're ancient homies now, and you're coming on the pod. And I hope most people listen to my show probably know who the hell you are. But if a handful that don't do now, mission accomplished. Hell yeah, man. I, I can't thank you enough, and I agree. I, it's nice that you say that, you know, we're helping people in this time because I did have a big smile on my face all New Year's just watching the comments rolling in and the donations and seeing the appreciation. It was, it felt really good. It was probably the best new year's I've ever had, to be honest, 33 years of age. Having been to big Cypress and I can't really give it the crown. I watched a ton of music and you guys are a major part of that. And yeah, it's crystal clear that, you know, your fans appreciate what y'all are doing and, and you're, you have a great personality, the band I'm saying each of the guys kind of has their, their own mojo and it's, a unique elixir, and I find it intoxicating. So with that, that I'll say thank you for your time and your energy and, of course, the music. Uh, Give a pound to your partners in crime on my behalf just because, you know, grateful to be in your orbit. You too, brother. It's really awesome that we uh, are new friends and can vibe about music, and it's always fun to talk to you. Yeah, man. Likewise, and uh, I'll leave you with the fact that I'm glad that Jules schooled you on Ableton because I just got Ableton like yesterday, along no with shit. it. Yeah, I I got this Akai MPK 49 for no. Christmas. Uh, some friends conspired; they were tired of hearing me what I just said to you. I, I used to make music, man. I used to play music, man. Uh, so yeah, no more used to. Uh, I got that's great. I got the Did synth, and I got an eleven. I got like a, I don't know. I want to say too much on the air. A cracked version, you know. It was like nice. here's a gift, you know. It was like cool. So I'm a beginner, man. I'm ready to start, like whatever it is. So you might be getting some. Hey, Johnny G, can you help me here and there? I'd love to, man. I, I'm a teacher, and I enjoy passing it on. So hit me up anytime. Right on. Well, I give thanks for uh, you know your opportunity to speak with me, and man, we'll do it again down the road. We should make this a regular thing. I would love to, man. I had so much fun.
Yes, indeedy. Want to say large up and deep bow of gratitude to my man Johnny G for those wonderful conversations. Learned so much about La Special. Learned a great deal about Johnny G, his journey, and of course we had lots of uh, similar passions, inspirations, and uh, even some. Formative experiences such as Berkfest or uh, Adam Deitch, etc. So, with that, we're going to move into uh, the Vibe Junkie Jam like we always do about this time. Just want to reiterate please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Send me an email at b.gets at upfullife.com. Any feedback is appreciated. And of course, check out our brand new Patreon patreon.com backslash up for life um and i'm going to finish up with a twofer really a threefer so vibe junkie jams if you will um i'd be remiss if i didn't play a little more of the special of course uh did a huge story on them around this album ancient homies you can find that on live for live music it's called food of the gods and uh i'll quote from my own slack-jawed stannery. Ancient Homies is an absolutely stunning synthesis of slamming sludge riffage, shoegaze oscillations, breakbeat meets Britpop, psychedelic dub, and brainiac polyrhythms, all of it swimming in supersonic sound design. Les Special's cataclysmic post-rock ambitions are all that jazz, expertly embedded within emotive songcraft. The band's deft, minimalist approach and exquisite instrumental storytelling makes for definitive juxtapositions and a thrilling expedition. So with that, uh, you're going to hear the magnum opus, in my opinion, of Ancient Homies, just called Tonberry. We talk about it a little bit in the interview. Just a massive tune, so heavy, so uh, just thrilling and exhilarating so we'll leave you with that as the vibe junkie jam and of course you know we had to do some villain so obviously being out here big mad lib house the up for life podcast is and of course we're celebrating the life and times of mf doom so i'm going to reach back to mad villainy for a twofer in the form of the glorious accordion and follow that up with meat grinder so two MF Doom songs to wrap it up on the Up For Life podcast, episode 40. Thanks to my man, Johnny G, the special. And uh, that'll do it. We'll see you next time.
the clock tick faster That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster Dick dastardly and muttly with sick laughter A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master I.C.E. Cole, nice to be old Y2G Steve twice to threefold He sold scrolls, low and behold Know who's the illest ever like the greatest story told Keep your glory gold and glitter For half half of his niggas to take him out the picture The other half is rich and it don't mean shit to Villain a mixture between both with a twist of liquor Chasing with more beer Tasting like truth for dear When he at the mic it's like the place get like Oh yeah It's like they know what's about to happen Just keep your eye out like eye eye capping Is he still a fly guy clapping if nobody ain't hear it And can they testify from in the spirit And living the true gods Giving y'all nothing but the lick like two broads Got more lyrics than the church got ooh lords And he hold the mic in your attention like two swords Or either one with two blades on it Hey you, don't touch the mic like it's AIDS on it Yeah, It's like the end to the means Fuck type of message that sends to the fiends That's why he bring his own needles And get more cheese than Doritos, Cheetos or Fritos Slip like Freudian Your first and last step to playing yourself like accordion When he at the mic, you don't go next. Leaving pussy cats like why hoes need Kotex. Exercise index won't need bow flex and won't take the one with no skinny legs like Joe Tex. Stripping soft, sweet minor. China was a neat signer. Trouble with the script digits. Double dip, bubble lip, subtle list, midget. Borderline schizo, sort of fine tits, though. Pour the wine, order grind, quarter to nine, let's go. Ever since 10 11, glad she made a brethren. Then it's last down, seven alligator, seven at the gates. I have a knock and no answer. Slow dancer, hopeless romancer. Dopest flow stanzas, yes, no villain. Metal face to Destro, guess so. Still incredible in escrow. Just say ho, I'll test the yayo Wild West style flesh, y'all best to lay low Hey bro, day glow, set the bet, pay dough Before the cheddar get away, best to get Mako The worst hated garden, perpetrated odd favors Demonstrated in the perforated rod labors In all quad flavors, large savers Still back in the game like Jack LaLanne Think you know the name, don't rack your brain On a fast track to half Sane, either in a slow beat or that the speed or at the cane Ladder, pain, doing songs lit in the booth With the best host, doing bong hits on the roof in the west coast He's at it again, mad at the pen Glad that we win a tad fat in a bad hat for men Grind the cinnamon, Manhattan warmongers You can find the villain in satin, gongas The van screeches, the old man preaches about the gold sand beaches The cold hand reaches for the old tan Elise's 